Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have two guests. We're um, discussing uh, the situation of labor shortages in the in the trades. And I have um, Matthew Metcalf from, uh, he's the coordinator for historic preservation from Bucks County Community College. And Natalie Hinshaw, um, she's from the Campaign for Historic Trades uh, of, uh, under the umbrella of uh, Preservation Maryland and the Historic Preservation Training Center. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah. So yeah, tell thank me, you. yeah, tell me about your um, your backgrounds. You can decide who goes first, but uh, give me give me some information about your background. All right. So as you mentioned, I'm with the Historic Preservation Program at Bucks County Community College. I'm a graduate of that very program, um, and my interests lie more in the realm of documentation amongst all of the different preservation trades, um, the different kind of preservation work that's out there. And um, I, I, I came into preservation in kind of a, an interesting way. My previous career was in journalism. And I worked for a television station in Trenton, New Jersey that gave me the opportunity to produce a weekly segment about local history for public consumption. So this kind of public history angle. And I fell in love with going to museums and archives and historic sites every week to tell a story about the people and the places of the past. And, and that really is what drew me in. And I was like, wow, I love this. And my boss said to me, she's like, you know, you really do seem to, to, to jive with this. Have you ever thought about doing it professionally? I was like, no, I guess I have. And, and so being right next to Bucks County Community College, I didn't even realize it was there or that we had had this uh, historic preservation program that went back to 1991. And so I, I took the classes, um, eventually got my, got my certificate, um, did some various public history work, um, went on to grad school so that I could teach. And then here we are, you know, in our 30th year, and I'm really proud to be part of that, but each in my experience, each person that comes into as faculty of this program or as a student comes from a different kind of background. Right. And everyone, everyone shares that preservation love, that understanding and appreciation of the places of the past. Yeah, the one, um, I, I, uh, I, think, I think it was before you joined us, we were chatting about my background and I, uh, right out of high school, went to our local community college, Harrisburg Area Community College. Um, and went to culinary arts school and I got a degree in culinary arts and a degree in restaurant management. And I, it was really hard then when I transitioned to going to a regular college to have professors that had never left the, 
they never left academia. So they and they they just kind of had stayed there where all the all the professors that I had at the community college all had like real life experience. I love that. So <laughs> it yeah. was it, it, that's something that I love about community colleges is that, that, that they do get a wide variety of, of instructors. And, and with different kinds of passion, you know, oh, yeah. you know, and, and different areas of focus. And I, and I don't want to take anything away from, from academia and the yeah. valuable contributions. Historic preservation has become a field because of the work yeah. that these, that the academic mm -hmm. preservationists have done. Yeah. Um, but it will always, to my mind and spirit, will always have that hands-on grassroots mm -hmm. base. Yeah. And I think you have to have that. You yeah. have to have that. You have to have the public buy-in. You, and you can't take that away or preservation isn't about preservation. It's not about communities and people and places and right. stories anymore. It, it, it becomes something, something else. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. So I just, I love that angle because that was, that was something that I struggled with then when I, when I went on. <laughs> so, so, so Natalie, tell me, tell me a little bit about your background. I also came into it indirectly like Matt. <laughs> um, like most people actually in preservation trades. So I uh, graduated in 2009 with a master's in history, which was a great year <laughs> to graduate from grad school. I was uh, I worked at a casino during college to pay for college and I was still working there a year afterwards, just applying for all these jobs with history. And I kept getting denied and everybody said, you're technically qualified, but this person has an additional certification. So they're a little more qualified than you. So I started to think, what can I do to get a specialized training in something professionally history related? And I found this job with, I think, uh, National Parks somewhere in Idaho and Wyoming. And it was rebuilding sod houses and building fences. And I immediately was like, this, this is, this is what I want. And I applied and I didn't get it. So I was oh, like, no. okay, so I need to find how to get certified so I can get that job. And it was actually kind of difficult to find a training program. Um, I didn't have any construction background or anything. So I looked at schools. That's just where my brain went because that's where you go for certification. And I found the closest school was either College of the Redwoods in California or uh, Savannah Technical College in Georgia. And I lived in Oklahoma, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> far the direction. <laughs> yeah. just smack in the middle. <laughs> so I picked up and I moved to Savannah, Georgia, and I got my associate's degree with Savannah Technical College. And uh, from there, took a variety of different jobs. I worked at uh, the National Park out here with Fort Pulaski, worked at nonprofits and random pickup jobs, glazing windows for eight bucks an hour. Um, and I finally ended up working with Historicor. It was based out of, or it is based out of Colorado mm -hmm. and they work nationally, primarily with the U.S. Forest Service. And I was one of two paid seasonal crew and we would work with volunteers to restore these historic structures on public lands. Right. And it was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, anybody who wants to volunteer and try it out, it's fantastic experience, but I got kind of all levels of experience with that. So I was a crew leader and a supervisor. I worked in the office on their program with Lamar Community College, uh, Southeastern Colorado oh, used yeah. to have a preservation program and no longer does. Oh. 
So that informed some of my <laughs> experiences in my current right. job. Um, and yeah, just got experience with youth corps and volunteers and training. And I also, in the off season, was living in Savannah and I opened up a window restoration business here. So I was doing both and running a business and working by myself, occasionally hiring people. I also taught some classes at Savannah Technical College again. So I have a really weird and winding <laughs> experiential path with yeah. a lot of things. And uh, it fits me well for my current position at Preservation Maryland, the Historic Trades Program Manager, because we're trying to work with youth core and program building and education and instruction and businesses and a whole bunch of things that kind of cobbles it all together. And you know, Dan, it's so funny that, that you'd say that, Natalie, because Danielle, we, we talk about this in preservation education all the time. So few people realize, you know, when they're going out of high school, they're like, oh, I could actually do this. I was actually just thinking that, yeah. Right, yeah. right. And, and so even putting it on people's radar becomes important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even, even at Bucks County Community College, I'm in the social and behavioral sciences department. I have to present um, to, to students who might go into psychology or sociology right. or some other thing that, that, that isn't related to this. But you have mm-hmm. students say, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. Right. And you have students who love history, but then they're not really sure what to do with it. And, and so here's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. To, to meld all of this together. And it, it's, it's really exciting. And when people get into it, um, they, they love it, they, they stay. I don't know a lot of people that ever regret getting hands-on experience with preservation or even preservation uh, education. It, it, it fuels a love of a passion. No, I, I agree with you. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking when I graduated from um, high school, there was not a big push towards, towards trades, even, and I grew up in a construction family. Um, my parents, my parents had a construction company and I, you know, that was the dinner table discussion, but that really wasn't a discussion. Even my husband, um, and he loves it now. And I can't, he, when he, but when we started dating, my dad offered him a summer job and he, um, he took it and never left. But before that, he was going to school to be an accountant. Now, if you, if you met my husband, you would think, how could he ever think that he was going to be an accountant? But that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other, a whole other story. But um, he, you know, it, you don't, he, he, it wasn't, it wasn't an option. His mom even tried to talk him out of it. So, and now he's done it for, you know, over 20 years and he loves it. Um, so it's, it's, I, I really do think that, that it's that exposure and, and, and understanding. There's something about, about young people. If you, if you don't, there's an old saying that you don't lo- you don't appreciate history until you have some. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's, you know, that, that skews it a little bit, but you know, when you get to, when you, when you get people a flavor of the hands-on yeah. and, and they, they recognize they, if you, if you are good tactile, you're good with with doing things with your hands and you love, you know, uh, being, you know, outdoors or you love seeing projects in a transformation. Or doing different things every day rather than the same thing over and over. Totally, totally. Yeah, my family was very confused when (laughs) the one with the master's degree went back to get an associate's degree. You know, they're from the generation where you work up from blue collar to white collar and they saw, you know, white middle class going down to blue collar again they're like that what that's not the trajectory you're supposed to go on (laughs) they were very supportive but they were confused um (laughs) they didn't quite know what to make of it 
And I think that's something too that needs to kind of be maybe one of those preconceived notions that need to be pushed through because there are good paying jobs within the trades. I mean, with and and they can, it, and I know like are, there's a um, local um, career training through the state here and they call them gold collar jobs because you know, the, and, and I, I always thought that that was a good marketing angle. <laughs> so I also learned as an adult that I have ADD and it explains, like I was a good student, but it kind of explains some of my mental struggles with it. And I found that doing the hands-on work is really awesome for my ADD brain. Like right. there's so much satisfaction. I'm so much more productive. And I, I think that it's kind of one of those people are realizing with education, there's different ways to learn. And I don't know if that's translated quite yet to work where like, you might be more mentally suited for something that's tangible rather than right. accounting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's very, I think that's very true. And I think that the more we can individualize for people is probably better. I'm glad you brought that up too, Danielle, because when, when you talk about pushing through this idea of, of this, this bias toward, you know, quote unquote, blue collar work and, and, and to your joke about gold collar work, you know, maybe these, these ideas are a bit antiquated. But, you know, to Natalie's point, if you enjoy working with your hands, you want to see a product that develops from beginning to end. This is this is your thing. If you like history, you know, and working and learning about the older te uh, techniques and the ways that the tools people used and, and the reasons that they did things, then this is where you want to be. Um, it, we teach at Bucks, the how, but we also teach the why. We're in this, we're being a community college. We are, we have quite a few people who come back to kind of what Natalie was talking about, who have other degrees right. and come back and earn our certificate. And it's, we find that we're, we have one foot in both camps as you need to know how you're doing, how to do the things that you're going to do, but also why you're doing the things that you do because you can actually cause a lot more damage to the historic structures if you just go in with no clue as to what you're right. doing. Um, so it perpetuates the history and you're learning about the things that you're working on. There's an inherent respect that comes with, um, with the work on the things of the generations of the past. And that's it's so that, so it's both it's both the job, but there's also something um, you know fulfilling to the soul. Right. I think, well, it's more it's more than just it's more than just a job. It is it is something that will will continue on, um, and I think that that's kind of having work with purpose. And I think that a lot of people look for that now uh, more so than maybe before. Absolutely. So um, tell me a little bit about why, why you, why preservation, what drew you into preservation? I think we touched on a little bit, but is there, is there anything else you want to share about that? I kind of, kind of feel like I just did earlier. Okay. I just already an interest in history and then realizing that there was a job like that and that I could do it. And the versatility of the job, you know, preservation encompasses rebuilding a sod house. It also means painting. Um, it also means roofing. So there's just so much variety within it as well. And so many possibilities and kind of figuring out what you want to do, even within preservation was really exciting. 
Like I took a blacksmithing class and that was great, but it also made me realize I don't want to be a blacksmith, <laughs> but I like it and I appreciate it. Right. <laughs> but it's still kind of under that umbrella. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just already a pre-existing interest in yeah. history. And I think also the work with the purpose and the tangibility. I liked seeing the wall that I built at the end of the day. Right. Um, whereas, you know, I wrote my master's thesis and that was satisfying, but then it was still just a file on a computer. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And I'm, I'm feel very accomplished, but that wall, I can sit on that wall. Right. <laughs> I can't, yeah. Yeah. I guess I could. And, and it'll thesis, be but... there. It'll be there and other people will appreciate it. Exactly. Yeah. And ideally for generations to come too, right? Like that's the, that's the thing that's really important to me, to my mind anyway, about preservation is your, is, is these, these places, structures, buildings, objects, sites, all of these places have been here for generations before you. Yeah. Your work on them will ensure that they are there for generations to come. Yeah. And talk about this, this notion of making an impact on society. Um, you can tell your grandkids, hey, I built that wall. Right. You know, or see that planking out there. Yeah, it looks it's it's showing its age. But 50 years ago, what was there, if we had not fixed it, if we had not brought it back to its uh, state that you see it now, it wouldn't be here at all. It wouldn't right. be telling those stories. Yeah. And, and that's to me, when you ask why preservation, I mean, it, it sounds a little trite, but it is storytelling, yeah. right? It, it connects it you to the past. Yeah. And it's meaningful to both you, hopefully, but mm -hmm. also to the community and, yeah. to, and to society as a whole. America is something, without getting too philosophical, America is, is, is an amazing, um, part of this amazing arc in history. And these places help tell a lot of different stories about America. And, and it's important to, to, to tell those stories to, to everyone um, and, and have those physical objects there to share, to be tactile, to, to say to you, this was here, you know, when this particular event happened. And it helps us understand a lot more than just that moment. I, I read a book and I've mentioned it a couple times in on the podcast um, last year uh, called Slavery in the North. Um, and it was written by a, so a sociologist, or no, he was, he was a psychologist. He was written by a psychologist. And he had a really interesting take on it. And I don't think he realized that he was making connections with preservation, but he was talking about if we have these places that we can touch, we can see, we can visit, that we can acknowledge things that happen there, then we have that as like a touchstone in our community. And if we start to not have those collective memories, that's when we start to lose them. And he, I don't think he was writing it to make a case for preservation, but it really, that's what clicked in my brain when I was reading it. You could even flip that too, Danielle, and say, if you take away those places, you can hide those stories. Right. Well, and, right. and his, his, his whole um, uh, thesis, I guess, was that these places are still here. We're just not we're just not we we're, we've kind of erased the memory of what happened to them so or there so if we if we if we just go back and look that these places are still there then we can start to acknowledge this history and i think it's really important on that point that that the notion of again preconceived ideas about trades preconceived right. ideas about preservation is understanding that preservation is not just about grand old buildings correct um that that was part of our history 
Mm -hmm. um, but here in the 21st century, we're warmly embracing stories of, of diverse people, um, diverse experiences, both positive and negative, because right. that tells, as the National Trust would say, the full story. Right. Uh, and, and that's part of it. So when you're preserving things, it's not just, you know, some grand manner somewhere. Right. You're also preserving the stories of regular everyday people, right. um, you know, some of whom were enslaved, some of whom had brutal experiences just eking out a life on, on a daily right. basis. Yeah. You're talking about Natalie's sod houses, yeah. you know, like like living out on the frontier. In, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, in a sod house. That's a story of perseverance. In oh America. my goodness. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's it, all of these stories of perseverance and, and the human reality of what living life has been in the past can be told through these places. And, and so when we talk about why preserve, um, that's a really, really important reason. Yeah, I, I, I really do agree with you. And, and this is a little bit off topic, but when you said when you said about eking out existence on a sod house, my dad's family went west on the Oregon Trail. And I, I can just imagine, I can just imagine. So I, I, it seems like all the men in my dad's family are salesmen, not maybe professionally, but they're really good at it. <laughs> I can just imagine them, you know, saying to their wives, oh, throw out your dresser, throw out, you know, whatever furniture. So we, well, it'll be better when we get there. <laughs> I, I can just imagine, imagine that occurring mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and there, there be fights over it. <laughs> Yeah, when they yeah the next year when they're out in their new sod right house. And, and there's no stores there's nothing <laughs> there's, there's not even trees to build a house right like that's, you know that's what's brutal about it too yeah, that's yeah fine. So, um, so uh, I I think that most people involved in the construction fields understand that there's a, it's a labor shortage of skilled workers um, so talk to me about where you see that in in the work that you do. Oh, I, I, I can. Do you want me to start that one off, Natalie? Okay. Look, so one of the things that that let me think about for a second. I don't want to say this. Crucial to working, crucial to an understanding of preservation trades is is the foundational idea that modern construction differs from older and historic construction. Definitely built differently, different techniques. And so it's not just a preservation fetish where you're using the old tools to do things in the old way. Literally how these places were built differs. And so you have to have the education to know what, to, what you're going to find or what you're likely to find anyway in these places in order to do justice to the project. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have faced generally in preservation. Right. Is, is making that argument um, to help people understand the difference. Because if you come from the outside, you're like, oh, well, I, I just need to, to sister these boards in whatever way I need to, right. to sister them, and then it's going to be just fine. But it might not be. Um, and as a matter of fact, in certain circumstances, you can do more damage right. um, than just letting the, the piece um, decay in place. So that is, that is really crucial to setting up to my mind anyway, trades education, specific to uh, restoration trades. No, I, I, I agree. That's one of the things that when we're talking to homeowners or when we're doing presentations that I explain, you know, after World War II, are the way we build buildings changed. And we went into very much more of a, they were trying to make housing 
being built like an assembly line. And that's just not how these older buildings were, were built. That Levittown model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think Matt brings up a great point as to why specific historic preservation training is needing for construction in general. Um, and some of the stuff we're working on at the campaign addresses a little more of the nitty gritty too about some of this labor market stuff. So it's really well known across the country and in industry that there's a skilled labor shortage for construction, but there's not consistent data for preservation right. construction. And so you find yourself in this weird predicament of it's just anecdotal stuff from people like us saying, there's a need, we need people, we need this training, but there's no data to back it up. So when you go to people and you're saying, oh, well, we need to train all these workers and they're like, well, what's wrong with just construction? Where's the data? You know, why do we need to train people? How many people do we need to train? How much money do you need to back up this thing or start this new program? And it's, it's not there, um, you know, cause you can have a preservation carpenter. You can have a preservation window person. You can have a slate roofer that does new roofs or repairs old slate roofs. So it's a subset of all these construction fields. And so that's very difficult on the training side to start up these programs when there's not really data to support it. It's just experiential knowledge from people in the field. So we're trying to actually do some studies that extrapolate that data so we can then use it in a lot of these preservation training activities and advocacy to start supporting for the specialized training. And that way we can also up-train people in this field. Right. Like the slate roofer, you can put on a new slate roof. How do you repair an older slate roof? What's the knowledge about the building styles then? Are you going to rip off all the skip sheathing? Are you going to put down plywood? You know, right. <laughs> so there's things that you can upskill in related trades too if you can show there's a reason and a purpose for it and a market need for it too. Right, right. Well, and I think that, I think there's definitely a, a need within the community of people who are looking for people to, to be sensitive to their, to their homes. Um, it's um, uh, the, oh, hold on. Oh, sorry. The <laughs> oh. Uh, sorry, the um, Zoom was telling me that we were running out of time, and then it it gave me an option to upgrade. <laughs> so just, I will I will try to finish my thought. Um, <laughs> but I I think that there's definitely a market for people who are interested in in that work. But I don't I do think that there's they people don't always know where to look either, so they just assume that there's nobody to do it. I think that's a, I, I really, I think that's absolutely fair, Danielle. And you get, and you're dealing with this every day, right? right. With, with, with your group, like this is helping people to understand the importance of caring for their historic house, because yeah. this is this whole notion of stewardship that we talk about that it's, yes, it's, it's your house, but you know, you're one in a long line of owners, you know, that will be caring for this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so tell me about your your programs. Um. So yeah, I can't. You want me to go? Now? Okay. So so our program offers both online and Zoom based 
um, education. Periodically, we'll do a face-to-face -face course in Bucks County, but we offer an online certificate that requires uh, specialized knowledge and, and in specifically in building conservation, uh, documentation, the history and theory of historic preservation, why are we doing the things that we do, what are the challenges that we face in society, and helping people to understand the importance of preservation, making the argument that you know we 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 have heard in preservation the green build the greenest building is the building already built. Right. Um, it's like a mantra in, in our world, but a lot of people don't understand that. If you don't understand the life cycle of a building from from uh, pulling the stone out of the ground all the way through disposal, it's cheaper in most cases to rehabilitate your older building and, and re-envision what it could be used for rather than knock it down and build new. Um, so so the, there's the environmental benefit, there's the economic benefit to that too. Um, and then the social benefit. So even engaging people in those ideas is part of, in our view of the world, is part of helping people to do their trades better, to, to explain why what they do is important, why what they do is unique, and why what they do is um, different, I guess, is it's unique, but it's different than what other people are doing that might also be carpenters or masons, for example. And that's really the heart of what we're trying to do. We prepare, we have a variety of students who will go into different, into um, different um, areas of study within preservation. So not everyone is going to, going to go into architectural conservation slash trades, and that's fine. Um, you, but everyone needs have to like know. a mix of people who go like into museums or into um, uh, like trade, like actual physical trades work? Like, is there, a, is it a good mix or how, how does that break down usually? I think, you know, the way that we see it is we see more people interested in doing documentation. They're, they're okay. more research people mm -hmm. often, but the area that has been the most consistent throughout the history of Bucks has been the conservation side, has been the, the learning how to do trades work, learning right. how to approach an older building, um, how to diagnose what the problems are with it, um, and then develop solutions to help remediate the problem, but also ensure the, the longevity of that place. So that, um, that, that to me is the fastest or most consistent uh, aspect of, of Bucks in the last 30 years or the folks that want to go into that. It's not a ton of people. But again, this goes back to the problems that we were talking about earlier, where, where we can't, we're, we're struggling to, to help people see the difference between, you know, modern construction and older construction, right. and the need for people who have specialized knowledge and skills. Mm -hmm. uh, the campaign for historic trades actually, it encompasses a lot. So I'll try and give the, the kind of brief overview of it. It's a partnership between Preservation Maryland and the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center, which is located in Frederick, Maryland. So it makes Preservation Maryland a natural partner for them. Um, known as the HPTC, it's the training hub for all NPS employees in preservation. So they reached out to Preservation Maryland about this partnership to, in general, promote historic trades training across the US um, by identifying and resolving different systematic barriers to the trades training, You know some of the things that we've already talked about. The major goal right now is to actually register historic trades apprenticeships with the Department of Labor 
and in the process also develop an open source curriculum and learning resources to be accessible to anybody who wants to start a program. Right, right. And apprenticeships are inherently individual based. So, you know, if we use me as an example, if I was in Oklahoma trying to look for training and I couldn't move, you know, I was able to move. But if I wasn't able to move, how can I find somebody who can train with me and I can get the education and I can go to that open source curriculum or, you know, enroll in Bucks <laughs> and do it remotely. So to that end, we're forming the Historic Trades Council and we're grouping together different preservation trade schools like Bucks <laughs> to figure out what are these national standards? What is the what should we be training preservation workers in and how should that then form the basis for this apprenticeship? Apprenticeships are actually structured pretty similarly to college syllabi. So it tells you what you should be learning and how long it should take you to learn it. The difference is this just on the job. So what we're trying to do is kind of flip the model to pay to train to paid to train. And we live in a country that very much emphasizes college degrees, as we talked about earlier. So this way, an apprentice can also earn a college degree in the process and not have to choose either or. Right. I actually went to a school with a lot of people who had to drop out for this very reason. It was school or work. And, you know, usually work that wins out. (laughs) You (laughs) got to pay for things. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So when you create that dichotomy, you lose people really fast. So we're trying to flip that script essentially. And also not reinvent the wheel. So the whole idea is that we want to overlay with the existing programs. We don't want to make anybody have to change what they're doing. We want to find the commonalities and say, these are the commonalities. Therefore, these are the standards. Um, And that way it's an encompassing and flexible type of programming. So nobody has to follow a specific track to get into it. We need more people, not fewer people by making it very strict. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much... Those are the main goals, and we're doing a lot of other things that draw lines to those goals. That's great. I know maybe 10 years ago, my mom had us register with the state to be like an official apprentice program. Um, and we had we had a young man who, who went through that. And I think he took classes in the evening, like at the local building association, but they were all modern building classes because that's all they, they had to offer. Um, so it would be great to be able to use that and then also, you know, have some preservation trades um, curriculum. Well, One of the means- other goals. Oh, oh no, go, you go ahead. Now. I would say. <laughs> One of the other goals, too, is right now we're aligning with the, the trades programs, right, with the different preservation trade schools. But we want to create kind of add on tracks, add on modules to related trades programs. One of our big potential partners is the International Masonry Institute, since they already have the Historic Preservation Training Certificate. So how do we make that a modular thing that people can add on to? So if you're going through a bricklayer apprenticeship, you can spend another year on a preservation track and then count as a heritage mason. These are not strict titles. I'm just kind of <laughs> making them up as I go. They're not registered yet. <laughs> but um, that idea of we need to involve the related trades more as well by adding on the historic trades training, because I also needed modern, like I need to know how to lay a brick right. and repoint and learn historic materials. So there's still so many commonalities, even with new construction that are also very valid and important to learn, as well as the historic. 
One of the things to me that makes the what the HTC wants to do so compelling is just what Natalie's talking about, is this idea of flexibility. Right. And this idea of bringing a, a variety of forms of knowledge that you can explore on your own as a student connected to this. Um, I, I really think that's important. This, the younger generation is, um, it has a lot of different interests and they, I think more perhaps than previous generations, they think more holistically. And I think that's really important when we consider preservation generally. Like, like we can, I can give you the introduction to building conservation, right, as a course. Um, but at the end of the day, like understanding how to take those things and then apply them in different situations is really, really important. And as preservation begins to lean into, arguably some, some areas it has been, um, but I think as a, as, a, as a field, we are going to be starting to lean really heavily into rehabilitation as an adaptive means, as a way to re-envision new futures for buildings whose original purpose is is no longer part of our society. Right, Uh, right. So so how do you you meld all of these things together and still allow the student to have interest in um, the thing and kind of cherry pick, if you will, the things that they want to be in and still have those basic skills to be successful. And that's why I love this model. Yeah. And in the adaptive reuse or um, rehabilitation model, you have to have some knowledge of modern building codes and some of those other other various things that you might not have if you just have a solely preservation background because that triggers meeting the modern built code when you when you're changing the usage of a building. Yeah. Uh, but then you also on. yeah, then you also have to have that preservation side where you can go to the inspector and say, hey, we're allowed these exemptions under the historic building section. <laughs> yeah. And there are people that don't even realize that there are exemptions. Right. Some of yeah. these requirements. Yeah. yeah. Well, and even talking about things like LEED, right? So energy oh, yeah. efficiency, you know, what does that look like in a historic building versus a modern building and being able to at least engage with those ideas, um, I think is really important. And I'm sure all of our preservation programs that are associated with the HTC are addressing that in some way, shape or, shape or form. <laughs> I shouldn't speak for them. I'm pretty, <laughs> I, I would say I'm, I'm 90% sure, you know, Belmont's talking about this and Clapsop is talking about this. It's not just Fox, right? Um, but, but understanding how to innovate with some of these things on site too. Again, that it, the importance of do it, not only being able to uh, perform the particular task, but understand why you're doing it to ensure that that particular place lasts for another 100, 200 or more years. Right, yeah. yeah and actually yeah. one other exciting point I forgot. Um, we also have the um, uh, a group in Puerto Rico <laughs> and um, the Spanish name is the Escuela Taller, and I think it's the Institute for Puerto Rican Culture is the umbrella, but they have also rolled out some historic trades apprenticeships. They're also known oh, as the traditional great. trades apprenticeship. Yes, and they're joining the council, but we're also going to enlist them to help translate the curriculum resources into Spanish as well. So it's way more versatile across yeah. the country. Um, a few people had brought that up before about you know language accessibility. Yeah. So that alone, I think was very exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is, that is. And, and there's a lot of history um, 
in the Caribbean islands. I think that uh, we were chatting, I think before we started recording about Andy DeGrucci from Limeworks, and he's spent some time in, in the Caribbean um, uh, with historic masonry preservation. So I, 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 would, I would love to be able to like go spend six months restoring something in the Caribbean, maybe during the winter. <laughs> yeah, where's our invite, Andy? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me about who are your students? I think we might have talked about that a little bit. Are they mostly people who are changing careers? Are they younger people? Most of our folks are actually in their 30s. Second career folks who come back, they might already have a degree, um, who come back and say, I'm looking for something more meaningful. I went into this career path. I went into my original career path because my parents thought this was a good idea. You know, I got, I got a, I got a bachelor's in business and now um, I found that I don't love working in business, but I'm very good with my hands and I'm interested in history and always has been. Um, and this person is like, is, is the ideal candidate for one of these, one of these programs in preservation. You meld your previous experiences. Right with now your preservation knowledge. And that, gives, that again opens up and Natalie's talking about these layers of knowledge that you can then tap into. This, this gives you new, new legs and new perspective that you can bring to the field. Increasingly, I have been contacted by younger people That's though great. looking to do more hands-on and we offer some hands-on courses. You can do our entire certificate online and complete that. However, we have workshops um, that you do have to be either on site for. And we also have something known as prior learning assessment, which allows you to be part of a workshop anywhere and then earn college credit toward your historic preservation certificate. Um, so you, there's lots of opportunities for hands-on, but younger folks who are looking to do something that has a different kind of meaning um, for their lives. Um, and they want to, you know, these folks want to do hands-on. Um, and I'm, I'm finding them in my uh, general education history classes that I oh, teach. Yeah. And so, you know, they're all like, you're, you, you, you're really excited and passionate about these things. And you show us these cool buildings, you know, that the other professors aren't showing them. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that helped tell the story of history, right? right? And, and, and they're intrigued. Their, their interest is piqued. Part of that is, is understanding what's out there. And if they don't know that this is this is a possibility, right, that is they're not going to pursue it. Right. Yeah, I would say anecdotally too. Uh, we don't have um, specific students or apprentices yet in our program, okay. but um, anecdotally, a lot of it is career changers, usually in their twenties to thirties, sometimes forties and fifties as well. And one of the things we want to work on is the pipeline for younger people to get into the trades. One of the methods we're doing that is through conservation corps and youth corps. Um, for anybody unfamiliar, it's based on the civilian conservation corps model from you know the New Deal. And it's been some programming that's been around for the last 20 or 30 years, but it's um, government funded with private funding as well. And it engages youth in public land stewardship. So initially it was, like uh, trail building oh, yeah. and things like that. But recently there's been an expansion to preservation work. There's the, um, oh, crumb, uh, Northern Bedrock. <laughs> I always, the acronym is very similar to um, <laughs> the North Bennett Street School. So I always <laughs> like wanna mix them both up. 
Yes, Northern Bedrock Conservation Corps in Minnesota. Massachusetts now has one. Um, Historic Corps is kind of based on that model. And we just entered a partnership with Conservation Legacy to place trainees in the field. So it engages youth ages 18 up to 30 now and veterans up to 35. And so they can work on public lands or um, for nonprofits and we're focusing it on preservation work. And we see that as a way to help funnel people in. A lot of people do that as like a gap year between high school and college. And if we get it set up with our apprenticeship program, it can funnel them that way as well. They earn uh, a living, usually room and board is provided, and then they get an educational scholarship at the end. So they can use that towards tuition or student loans. So it's a great way to get some people interested in the trade, see if they like it. I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to make a commitment I know I looked at um, the American College of Building Arts, even after Savannah Tech, and I was like, I don't know if I can commit four years to timber framing. I'm just not sure (laughs) that's what I want to do. I'm commitment phobe, I guess. And so (laughs) I think this is a great way to give some people experience to see what they want to do. Yeah, so that's one of the ways we want to start engaging younger people in it, too. That's, um, I think that those are the flexibility of your program is really appealing to me and, and the flexibility for of the Bucks County program of being able to do it all online. I personally hate online classes, but that's great for everybody, you know, that you can, you can do it from wherever and you, and you can, you can get all of the, all, all of the, um, the, the coursework completed. You have people who are working all day, you know, mm-hmm. and they, and they might be able to attend a night class. Um, maybe they can't, maybe they have kids, maybe they have elder care, they have other responsibilities, but they still want to be able to, to envision themselves in a new career field. And that's, yeah. that's one of the, that's the power of the, of the online courses. Yeah. And, yeah. and recently we, we did reintroduce Zoom right before the pandemic hit right. um, as an option for students who prefer to learn. I mean, you're in a classroom, but it's a digital right. classroom, you know, but, yeah. Yeah, but, you're, but you're hearing things, you know, some people are not good text learners. They, right. they uh, learn better through audio visual. So, I mean, we have some flexibility to that too, but the, to me, the, one of the things that the, that the Historic Trades Council is going to do is we're going to have this kind of library of materials. So if people want to learn more about timber framing, you know, for example, there, there, there will be all kinds of materials, not right. just specifically from our classes, but, but other outside resources um, and links to, to people who do this professionally. We need to build the network. And that's part of what, um, what is one of the amazing things about what HTC can do. I, I think that's very important to, to kind of have that not necessarily open source model, but like where you're compiling all the information in one place. Cause I feel like right now there's a lot of information, but it's not, you have to search for it sometimes. Yeah. And, and th- this is, th- that's really exciting to, to have like one source that you could go to. Um, Let me, if I can, can I throw out one other thing, uh, Danielle, now that you've extended the time, thank you. (laughs) I, 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 I totally forgot how that I needed to do that. So thank you for your patience while I, while I quickly, quickly upgraded. (laughs) Very very sly. We didn't even know. It it was good. I just noticed that the countdown disappeared. Um, One of the the other things that I wanted to, um, uh, how, how do we, so, so the, the other thing that the, the other powerful part about this, I don't know if, if I'm stealing any thunder, just tell me to shut up, is, is technology. 
So even though we're working with older materials in older places, these older and historic buildings, right. um, increasingly new forms of technology are being used to assess them and to determine what the best, uh, the best course um, of intervention will be for them. Um, and when we begin sharing these, we can see how these are being applied on a regular basis and then, you know, pool that knowledge to say, hey, right. this really, really worked well for us here. Right. Um, maybe this is something other people can try. Um, and then getting the young people trained who, you know, inherently they're mm -hmm. done many of them are a duck to water with right. technology that, that older generations haven't been, um, but facilitating their, their adoption of specific technology-based techniques to do their work. Yeah, I, I think that's very, um, very important. I think, and I don't think, you know, I mean, and even like substitute materials, like as long as it has a track record, it's not gonna damage the building. There, there are some things that are acceptable and, and to have that as a database to understand you know, I, I, I don't want to be an early adopter. In that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we talk about things in our in our in our restoration courses and restoration yeah. and rehabilitation course. We put it on a spectrum. Good, better, best. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like and, and the, the rest of the, the context of preservation matters. So there's budgets, there's stakeholders, there are right. things that are that factor into how and what gets done at a certain time. So knowing what where the where the spectrum of, of choices are is, is part of that game too. Yeah. But I, I mean I think one one good example of like a modern modern material that I would view as like a technology, not necessarily like computer based, but like epoxies have really changed a lot of a lot of preservation. Um, and so that's you know that's the, I I there, I think that there's definitely ways to make a database so that people have like a full range of experiences too. Cause I know there's some epoxies that we use that are like, this isn't working well. So then we have to try, you know, a different one. And it, it, sometimes it's trial and error. And then that knowledge kind of just stays with us. Like we're never using that again, but if we could share it with other people, it would, it's probably would be beneficial. So, um, so talk to me about, I think we talked a little bit about the jobs that they're preparing for. You said it, for Bucks County, it's mostly uh, conservation work. Is that correct? So we have kind of three soft areas, uh, museums and historic sites okay. um, as one area, documentation as another. So folks that are going out and writing up, uh, assisting people in writing up um, tax credit register, applications, yeah. uh, national register nominations, that sort of thing. And then the architectural conservation slash trades. And we do, to, we do kind of uh, put those two together um, because we want to talk about some of the more sophisticated ideas that they're going to run into out there. But there's also the how-to that's really, really critical to that. And so um, the, the fastest growing one seemed to have been um, the research, so the documentation sector, if you will, but the most consistent one where we have people that are consistently interested over the last 30 years right. has been and continues to be the conservation aspect, the architectural conservation and trades. They wanna go out, these are, these are hands-on people and this is, this is what they wanna do. Um, and people that are in will figure that out too. We get people that come in and say, I really like this. I'm not really sure where I wanna go. And they'll take the, our, our core courses. And as a result of those, they'll get a sampling of a little bit of each of these. And, the, and they'll, they'll get a sense of, of generally the direction they wanna go. Um, and consistently we get people every year who are graduating who do amazing work, you know, restoring windows as Natalie referenced earlier, um, doing mantles, um, doing historic structure reports, the, the kinds of work that would go into 
framing how people are going to do um, and then going forth and doing that kind right. of work. And I, I think I saw on the um, Campaign for Historic Trades website that there's like, you have a bunch of different trades that you're training for. Is that is that correct? That's the goal. Okay. The initial apprenticeship, we actually want to put under the maintenance job category, okay. because if you look at these two-year programs, it's really a dabbling of different things. Um, somebody can't accredit it to somebody, but somebody told me, and it's very apt, a toe dip program. So, you know, I took a blacksmithing class, <laughs> right. but I also took a stained glass. I also took a carpentry and a masonry. So it gives you enough experience in all those to have familiarity. What it really prepares you for is the maintenance of a historic site. And that is a pretty great need throughout the States. You it know, is. there's so That's many huge. sites, yeah. right? So a, a historic maintenance person. Um, so one of the reasons we're doing that is because we want to partner with the related trades and unions on other specialized tracks. We don't want to come in and say, this is what it takes to be a preservation carpenter without first working with the carpenters union because they have their standards. So what would work with them and their standards to add the preservationary track? So we will be training for the more specialized ones, but that'll be a little bit um, more in the future, a little more diplomatic. And we do also want to tie it in potentially with other programs like North Bennett Street School because they have the preservation carpentry. So how can we make it work for them and the Carpenters Union? It'll take a little bit more work on that side. So initially it's going to be the generalist. And then from there, we want tracks into specialties that overlap with the existing trade. That's mm -hmm. great. And I think the exposure to multiple things is really helpful too, because sometimes that's what you need to maintain a building. Well, and, and that's what people will face on a regular basis. I mean, right. if you really want to get down to practical preservation, yeah. right? Like it, yeah. it's the whole theory of follow the water. If you're seeing water intrusions in a certain right. area, um, whether, it's, whether it's impacting the wood or impacting stone, or it's likely to be impacting both. Right. And so you need to be able to recognize, okay, there might be, maybe there's a problem with this wood, which might suggest I might check the stone, you know, that's adjacent to it, that there might be issues. If I'm a Mason, I need to be, I need to be aware of where the degradation is, whether it's affecting my stone right now or not, it might be coming up. Right. Soon. right. Yeah. And, and yeah, water, water is such an issue. <laughs> so um, it, is there anything else that you thought of while we were talking that you maybe wanted to share um, that I didn't think to ask you? Um, I'll throw out one thing. I thought, I thought what Natalie said about the unions was really important. You know, unions have this deep history. They know what it takes to erect buildings, <laughs> right? Like, um, and, and that's really important because we want our students to be able to have foundational knowledge Right. that could make them valuable in that sphere if that's where they want to go if they want to work on new buildings we we want to give them the you know that the the background necessary to to go into and and work with with in that context but also understanding why the old buildings are different so if you want to specialize in that you can do that too um and so that i think that partnership is really really critical um that, that historic background, that knowledge of, of what the standards are in, in their world, because when you have, uh, it's that, what's the word, oh God. Um, what's it, what, the critical mass. Oh yeah. You know, if you have a critical mass of employees or people working in a certain area, often represented by unions, you know, their voice is going to carry. Right. And so we need to, we need to be able to partner with them 
um, so that, that we, we can accomplish what we're trying to accomplish while at the same time making sure that our students are as flexible as possible. Natalie, was there anything that you thought of? No, not necessarily. Okay. Okay, <laughs> it's hard because there's so much to talk about. So yeah, how do you parse yeah. it down? So, yeah, yeah, no, there yeah. was there. Yeah, I always ask that at the end because I, I just want to, like, sometimes something will come to me. I'm like, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> this has been a long time in coming, what, what the HTC is doing. And we've needed this for a long time. And I'm, I know that I've, when Natalie first uh, brought this up to me, I, I was, my mind was blown. I was like, finally. <laughs> you know, people within the field have been talking about this right. too, is, is what does this look like? You know, it, the, how people get experience and knowledge is going to differ regardless where you are and, and based on the individual as well. Um, but at the end of the day, everyone should have a certain base level of knowledge. And the fact that, that, that Preservation Maryland thought to even, you know, get this launched. And now that HPTC is going to be involved to the level that they will, that's really important because the National Park Service sets so many of the standards that preservation right. follow. Yeah. So having that, having, having all of these really critical voices at the table to create these standards, um, I think is only going to benefit that preservation ethos and the work that we do in the long run. I totally agree. I do. And, and I think that there's, there has been somewhat of a cultural change. It hasn't been huge or fast, but of looking at the trades as an, a viable option rather than maybe 20 or 30 years ago, where it was kind of, that's, we're just going to put all the kids that aren't doing well in school in Votech and ignore them. <laughs> and, right. and that that's really the, the, probably that's not the best place for them either. Cause I, I, I believe that, you know, you really need a brain to, to be able to, to work in, in the trades. Every um, student your can Your brain work. might work differently, but you still need, it still needs to work well. <laughs> Fraction math. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I always The mental joke. gymnastics. I always of the U.S. customary um, like, system, you know, my Jonathan like measures to like the you know thirty second or sixty fourth. I don't know what he's measuring to, and I'm like, I missed that day in school. He's like, it was more than a day. I'm like, I missed it. <laughs> oh, it makes you really want the metric system. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's you know. Every student, we say this at Bucks a lot, you know, without, you know, putting on my, you know, education, getting in my education parade here, but, but we say that this at Bucks a lot is that every student can learn. Every student learns differently. Yeah. And it's whether or not we can get people engaged with the things that they want to learn about yeah. in a way that allows for them to succeed using their particular skill sets. So if you are a visual learner, we want to engage you visually. If you do better with audio, okay, we'll do that. Or text or hands-on, tactile, right? Becomes really, really important. And that's where, that's where for a long time, trades were, were, were looked down upon for no reason at all, to my mind, to no, for no reason at all. Um, these are these are people that are, that are hardworking, that um, have to have knowledge in their field. Right. that carry us forward as a society. Yeah, yeah. Um, Specialized so, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to be able to build this, this connection, um, I think is, is great. Yeah. 
I, I, I do too. I thank you so much, uh, both of you, for, for joining me today. Um, uh, Natalie, how can someone support the Campaign for Historic Trade? Great question. <laughs> the, the short answer is you can visit the website, historictrades.org, and we have a support the work link. So that details a lot of the very particulars on how you can support the work. Um, a longer answer is right now, we're really just looking to build the network. So any type of supporters, funders, pipelines for students, um, contractors who want to take on apprentices, really want to start building out that network because another goal of the Historic Trades Council is to be a career coach so we can help individually guide people on their pathway. Um, so we need all of those. And then financially supporting is a little bit more in the future. Um, obviously, we'll take any general donations towards the work, but we also want to have more specialized things so somebody can like buy an apprentice a toolkit, like a basic toolkit, so they can fund that or then have a scholarship for them so they can go to Bucks, right? So you can fund a scholarship. And then with our preservation core, we also want to expand it to, like I said, the different states. My goal is to have a preservation core in every state. It's very ambitious. We'll see. But that's a group of, you know, four or five or six people going out and working. And as I said before, too, it's publicly funded, but it requires private donations. Right. So 25% of it has to be matched somehow. And when you start adding it up, it becomes pretty big. Like the traditional trades apprenticeship program with the national park is that way. And it's looking to actually quadruple in size in the next three years. But that also means the 25% match also has to quadruple right. to make it even possible. So there are those fundraising and um, monetary ways people can help support some of this training. Very good. Um, and how can our listeners contact you? Me? Sure. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can, I can add to that. Yeah. So uh, I would tell people go to our website, www.bucks.edu slash HP. Um, check out what we do, check out what we offer, and then come join us for a class. Um, you can audit if you want to, you know, you don't have to take it for a grade. Um, learn more. Preservation is, is everywhere in, in, in what we do on a regular basis. And in, in many cases, we don't realize it. Um, but this is an opportunity. We're coming up on America's 250th anniversary right in, in 2025, 2026 is when America is gonna be celebrating that. And so our historic places tell those stories. And so we can help you appreciate those stories and share their, those stories and learn how you can work with those stories on a regular basis. And um, it, it, get involved, come meet us. We'd love to talk with you. You'll find a, a group of like-minded folks um, when you come see us. Very good. Well, thank you both so much. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you. Yeah, that was so great. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.